Amen. Well, it is great to see you today. I counted a few yawns earlier. Maybe you stayed up late last night. I don't know. But uh, I'm glad you're here, and we're going to get into it today. I'm so excited about uh, what I've got to talk to you about today. So remember last weekend, we talked about a book. Remember that? This book, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, and we particularly honed in on the reasons why we can rely on the Bible, right? It's trustworthiness for us in telling us the truth. And at the end, I left you with a challenge. Do you remember what it was? Read the Bible, right? (laughs) Read the Bible. Read it. It's God's Word. Take it in. Absorb it. Read it. Hear it. Study it. Meditate on it, memorize it, take God's word into your life, into your soul, absorb it. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So take the word of God in like it was nourishment for your soul, because it is. It's just that. Well, this morning as we begin this new series today that we're titling, epic. I want to kind of set things up by asking a follow-up question to last weekend, okay? When we read the Bible, when we do that, what do we see in there? What's in there? What's this book all about? You know, people read the Bible in a variety of ways, don't they? Some people read the Bible and they see it as a collection of stories, some really cool stories like Daniel and the lions and Jonah and the whale and then some kind of confusing stories like Abraham offering up his son Isaac and just a collection of stories. Other people read the Bible and they mainly see a code of conduct, you know, like God's rules to live by so that you won't get zapped by God. Some people read the Bible and, and they just kind of stay away from the Old Testament because the Old Testament seems to be about Israel and that doesn't seem to have much to do with their lives, doesn't seem to be relevant, so they just kind of stay away from the whole Old Testament. I've known Christian people who view the Bible as kind of a book of inspirational sayings. And so they read the Bible to find some uh, quotes that they could lift out of the Bible and kind of put on a plaque and hang it in their hallway, that sort of thing. Other people read the Bible looking to get guidance for their lives or to find wisdom to help them make a decision that they're facing. And still others, you've done this, I've done this. You've picked up the Bible, just kind of let it fall open where it may, Pick a place on the page and start reading it there, hoping for a flash of insight from God, right? I mean, you've done that. I've done that. We all have. People read the Bible in a variety of different ways, looking for a variety of different things. But all that kind of begs the question, is there a right way to read the Bible? And conversely, are there wrong ways to read the Bible where you might walk away with the wrong idea about it? You ever thought about that? I wonder. Back when I was in seminary, I was taught what is called systematic theology. Do you know what that is? What that means is that I was taught to view the Bible as a book that presents the truth about different topics. Systematic theology looks at the Bible topically. So, for example, take the topic of money or of heaven, for example. I was taught that the Bible reveals truth about those topics, and what you needed to do was take a piece of paper, write that topic down as the header on that piece of paper, then get a concordance which shows you everywhere in the Bible where the subject of money or the subject of heaven is talked about, and then you'd write down, you know, in bullet points underneath your header all that you were learning about that topic 
from the Bible. That's systematic theology. We offer a class here called Know What You Believe that approaches the Bible that way. And I want you to know, I believe in systematic theology. It's helped me immensely. And that's what I was taught. What I wasn't taught much of is what is known as biblical theology. And biblical theology is different from systematic theology. Biblical theology views this book, first and foremost, as a story. A story. Biblical theology sees the Bible revealing the grand story of God's activity in the world from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, one long, continuous, glorious, epic story. Like all stories, the story contained in the pages of the Bible has a director, and it has actors. It involves a star and a villain. There's a primary plot line to the story, along with a host of subplots that are kind of woven in throughout that storyline. There's tension and anticipation that builds over time. There's a conflict that reaches a climax, and then a hero who comes at just the right moment to save the day. And there's a glorious resolution that ties the main plot and all the subplots all together. You know, some people believe that all the other stories that human beings tell, whether on the printed page or on the movie screen, find their genesis in the story. That's how biblical theology approaches reading the Bible, as one story. Now, as I said, I believe that systematic theology has its place. I don't want you to hear me wrong about that. But I'm coming to understand and believe that you don't really understand the Bible fully and accurately until you see it through the lens of biblical theology. The Bible contains a story, an epic story. So here's what I believe. I believe the Bible is first and foremost the story of God, his story. Some people, you know, read the Bible as if it was primarily a story about us, but I believe that approach is a little bit off, a little skewed. You know, we humans like to believe that everything's about us. <laughs> I do believe the story includes us. We're important to the story, but it's not focused on us. It's really the story of God. It's his story. More specifically, I've come to believe that the story of the Bible is primarily the story of God, the king, seeking to display his glory through the establishing of a kingdom. A king seeking to establish a kingdom. And you know, for centuries, Bible scholars have tried to discern whether the Bible has one like overarching theme to it that would tie all the other themes together. And there's been a lot of scholarly debate about that throughout the years. Several worthy entries have been put forward. For me, for now, I place myself among those who believe that there is indeed one overarching storyline to the Bible, and it is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In future weeks, we're going to explore this more, including what Jesus himself said about the kingdom of God. Today's more of an introduction to this idea, and here's what I want to do. I want to hoist us up to the view from 30,000 feet, okay? So we're going to get in this imaginary helicopter and go skyward and look down where we can see the whole panorama of human history through the lens of the kingdom of God and see how this theme of the kingdom unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture. So are you up for that? Okay. Well, let's begin by asking the obvious question. What is it? The kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? 
And if you hear that phrase, kingdom of God, and your mind goes immediately to like medieval castles and drawbridges and moats and uh, knights and serfs and fiefdoms and all that kind of stuff, that's understandable. But probably to get our concept of the kingdom, we ought to go where? To the Bible, right? Because this is the B-I-B-L-E, the book for me, and it's reliable and trustworthy in what it teaches us. So for my study of the Bible, I want to offer to you this morning three definitions. You can pull the study guide out of your worship folder there and follow along. I'm going to give you first a very concise one based on the meaning of the word kingdom that we find in the Bible. Then I'm going to give you a one-sentence definition that's, that I really like, and we're going to kind of trace that through the story. Very memorable. And then we're going to kind of blow it up and give an expanded definition, okay? First, concise definition. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the word, if you study it, means kingship. The kingdom of God is God's kingship, his kingly reign. And when you hear that, you realize, here's the idea of divine authority, right? So, what do kings do? What do kings do? They reign, right? (laughs) They rule and reign. They exercise their kingly authority throughout a, a realm, throughout a domain, throughout a kingdom. That's what kings do, and they hopefully, hopefully do that for the good of the people, right? A second definition. What is the kingdom of God? I love this one. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and blessing. Would you say that with me? The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and blessing. Notable Bible scholars like Graham Goldsworthy and Von Roberts and others have offered this very simple and memorable definition. And a unique feature of it is that it speaks primarily of God's reign, specifically over his people. Do you see that? Now, certainly God the creator reigns over all of his creation, right? He reigns over all of it. But when the kingdom of God, when that phrase is mentioned in Scripture... It almost always refers to God's rule and reign over a specific group of people, his redeemed people. And so in the Bible, non-believers, non-Christians are spoken of as being what? Outside of the kingdom, not in the kingdom of God. Even though they live in God's created world, they're outside of God's kingdom because they haven't yet submitted to the rule of the king in their hearts. So when we speak of the kingdom, we're talking about God's rule, God's reign in the hearts and lives of certain people, his redeemed people. Does that make sense? All right. Now let's expand this out a little bit. What is the kingdom of God? God, the righteous king, dwelling with his redeemed people who experience his blessing while gladly living under his gracious rule in his specially prepared Does that sound pretty good? Almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? A righteous ruler who will come and usher in the good life for his people? Don't you long for that? You know, we all long for that. Think about every election cycle like we're in right now. Think about all the promises that are made, right? 
We all long for a righteous ruler to come and, and usher in the good life for us. You know what we're really longing for? We're longing for the kingdom of God. For the truly righteous ruler to come and usher in the truly good life for his people. That's the kingdom of God. That's what we want. And so now, here we are way up high looking down at this panoramic view. And I want us to see how this theme of God's kingdom is unfolded throughout the storyline of the Bible. Now, huge books have been written on this, okay? I'm just going to kind of sketch it out for you in shorthand. So stay with me. Where do we first see the kingdom of God? Well, we see it, number one, modeled way back in the Garden of Eden. The kingdom modeled in the garden. Think about this. In the opening scenes of the Bible, we find the first glimpse of the kingdom of God. Remember the definition? God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and blessing. Well, who were God's people? Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the beautiful Garden of Eden. And yes, for a season anyway, living under God's rule and blessing as God God ruled through his word. They submitted to it. This was the world as God designed it to be. This was the pattern of living in God's kingdom, just as he designed it. But then what do we see? The kingdom rejected, right? The kingdom rejected in the fall. Sadly, our ancestors, our forebears, our representatives thought life would be better lived independently of God. Thanks for that, God. Appreciate that. But we're going to live the way we want to live. And that choice had what? disastrous results for them and for all of their ancestors, including us, up to this day. They rejected God's kingship. They turned away from God, and so he turned them away. No longer were they his people, and no longer were they allowed to dwell in his special place. They were banished from the garden. And since they chose to reject his rule over them, they were out from under his blessing. In fact, they began to experience a curse, didn't they? It's a gloomy picture. And yet, I love this, even in that scenario, there was a tiny glimpse, a promise of redemption introduced, even in the midst of them rejecting the kingship of God because God himself shed innocent blood to provide coverings for his shame-filled people, right? So way back in Genesis 3, a hint, a glint of promise of the gospel. So the kingdom modeled in the garden, rejected in the fall of man. The next thing we see is God reviving this vision of the kingdom in a promise to a man named Abraham. Abraham. God decided to choose a man for himself. And he made some amazing promises to that man. Promises to Abraham that would, in effect, reestablish his kingship through Abraham's descendants. And that promise meant that God would once again have a special people. That they would dwell in a specially prepared place called the promised land. And there they would live under his rule and enjoy the blessing of the king. God's people in God's place living under his gracious rule and blessing. That's the kingdom promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so Abraham had a miracle child, didn't he? Isaac. He and Sarah, Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so God's promise to Abraham came true and his descendants were multiplied in in the millions. 
due to a famine in the land, they ended up being down in Egypt as a nation of slaves making bricks for Pharaoh down there. But in time, God, their true king, miraculously rescued them from their bondage and slavery through the leadership of a man named Moses, right? Moses, God through Moses freed them to head out to the promised land and worship their king and they crossed through the Red Sea and they headed out on their way by way of Mount Sinai. It was there that the king gave his chosen people his royal law so they could live under his rule and enjoy his blessing, just like their ancestors Adam and Eve had known. Now this is amazing. As this throng of one or two million people strong was moving through the wilderness towards the promised land, God amazingly decided to dwell in the midst of his people in what we call the tabernacle. And he said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the kingdom dream of God. So how'd that all work out? Was it like just glorious? Or was there sin in the hearts of the people? <laughs> yeah. As they wandered around in the wilderness, they started to whine. They started to complain. We don't like the food. We don't like our leadership. We're not real wild about you, God. <laughs> Things went south. And God let a whole generation die off, didn't he? And then he appointed a successor to Moses whose name was Joshua. And through Joshua's leadership, they finally got to enter that land of promise and drive out the wicked inhabitants who live there by the power of God. And by the time of King David and King Solomon, they enjoyed a season of peace and prosperity unsurpassed in Israel's history before or since. And so they were now a whole nation of God's people dwelling in God's specially prepared place, living under God's gracious rule and enjoying his blessing. The kingdom of God pictured. And then we see under the reign of David, the kingdom reaffirmed to him. King David, remember him? The shepherd boy turned giant slayer, turned king of Israel. One day God spoke to a prophet named Nathan and said, I have a message for you, Nathan, to deliver to my king, King David. I want you to hear it. It's incredible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what it says. Now therefore, this is the Lord speaking. Thus you, Nathan, shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. And listen now, here's the great promise, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's called the Davidic covenant. It's huge in Bible history. God promising David, you will have a descendant who will be a king who will rule from Israel forever. Well, here's how David responded, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I? 
Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people a nation and its gods whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever and you, O Lord, became their God. David heard that great promise and he said, no way. He was blown away by it. Me? Who am I? What's my family? And so God reaffirms his kingdom plan to David. One of your descendants will reign forever in Israel. So how'd that go? I mean, did it just turn all glorious from that point on? Or did the continual problem of sin remain? (laughs) Same song, second stanza. You know, a holy king, a holy king has to have a holy people to dwell with, right? God's people had shown time and time again that they were far from holy. In fact, it was their sinful pride and rebellion and idolatry that eventually splintered that kingdom of Israel into two parts. Right after the death of David's son, Solomon, and several hundred years later, both that northern kingdom of Israel and that southern kingdom of Judah were both overrun by their enemies and God's people were carried away into exile, and it sure looked, it sure looked like God's promise was just going to fall flat, that it just wasn't going to happen, that the dream was going to die. No longer were God's people dwelling in God's prepared place for them. No longer were they gladly living under his gracious rule. No, they were scattered far and wide into Assyria and into Babylon, and God's blessing had been forfeited by sin, like it always is. This was a depressing era in Israel's history. And during that era, God raised up several prophets who spoke on his behalf to his people. Prophets with names like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These were unique, eccentric men with fire in their belly who were raised up to speak a strong word to the nation and to tell them that Israel's captivity was a result of their idolatry and their wickedness and sin and rebellion. But those same prophets also declared that God's kingdom dream was not dead. And so the next thing we see in this unfolding story is the kingdom revived, anticipated once again by these prophets. When they spoke and when they wrote, these prophets pointed forward to a time when God would act decisively in history to fulfill all of his promises through a coming Messiah king. A man who would be a descendant of both Abraham and of David, just like the promises. These prophets spoke of a glorious time when this special man, this servant of Jehovah, would come to earth and reign on David's throne and usher in the truly good life once again for the people of God. And they also hinted at something, these prophets did. They hinted that this Messiah king would also suffer and die for the sins of the people. The people who listened to those prophets and read their writings did not fully understand what that meant. 
And the Old Testament era ended with that promised Messiah and his glorious reign still far off, but highly anticipated because of the word of the prophets. And then we come to Jesus. Jesus. The next thing we see in the unfolding story of the scriptures is the kingdom announced and inaugurated by Jesus in the fullness of God's time, right at the point in the story when the anticipation had mounted to a fever pitch, Jesus comes on the scene. Born where? In Bethlehem. Well, that's where the prophets had predicted that this Messiah King would be born. In Bethlehem, that's where Jesus was born. But of course, he was born in obscurity and humble beginnings, and few people at the time really understood the significance and the the true identity of this little Jewish boy. You might recall that at the age of 30, his cousin, John, baptized him. Remember that? In the, in the Jordan River. And John basically was the one who introduced Jesus to the masses and, and said, this, this is he of whom all has been written. And when Jesus was 30, he exploded onto the public scene and he began his ministry with this stunning announcement, Mark 1 14 and 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, listen, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see what he's saying? The kingdom's here. Why? Because the king is here. Jesus was saying, I'm it. I'm the promised one. I'm the long-awaited one. And the kids in his hometown that he grew up with said, You? We know you. We played stickball with you in the streets. We know your parents and cousins. What do you mean? You're the king? You're the Messiah? Jesus said, The kingdom of God is at hand. The waiting is over. God's promised king was here. The seed of the woman promised way back in Genesis chapter 3 had come. The seed of Abraham, through which the whole world would be blessed, promised in Genesis 15, was here. The promised son of David, who would rule from his father's throne in Israel, the prophesied suffering servant of Jehovah that the prophets had spoken about. Jesus said, he's here, and he's me. I'm the king. And through his life and his teaching and his miracles, he demonstrated without a doubt, that he was indeed the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah King. And he had the power to put everything right again. Here was God in the flesh, dwelling with his people in his place, announcing the arrival of the kingdom. So how'd that go? (laughs) The question was, would the people receive him as their king? Would they be content to live under the king's gracious rule? Well, very interestingly, the storyline takes a turn there, doesn't it? What happened is it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Not. They rejected him, didn't they? They looked at Jesus Christ, and they said, Here's our conclusion about you. You're possessed by the devil. We've heard you teach. We've seen your miracles. We've we've talked with each other. And what we think is you're possessed by a demon. They rejected Jesus Christ, and they called instead, not for his coronation, but for what? His execution. But you know what? 
in a remarkable and strange twist of plot penned into the script by the divine author himself. It was that very execution that ultimately dealt fully and finally with that nagging problem of sin. Making a way for sinful human beings to dwell with a holy king forever and ever. What a story this is. I mean, have you ever just marveled at the story? And so, Jesus was executed, wasn't he? Brutally executed. All according to plan. Hanging on an old rugged cross, nails in his hands and feet, a spear thrust into his side, a crown of thorns mashed on his head, his body crushed, his his blood shed. But then three days later, he rose from the grave like he said he would, and his resurrection proved the success of his rescue mission. He announced hope to the world. And so one man said, by his death and resurrection, Jesus again did all that was necessary to put everything right again and pave the way for the full and final restoring of the kingdom of God, God's people again, dwelling in God's place, living under God's gracious rule. Is that what happened? After his resurrection, was he crowned king? In fact, his disciples came to him and said, looking at the living Christ, said, now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, Not yet. There's going to be a delay. There's going to be an interlude. And I'm going to go away. He said, I'm going to ascend to my Father, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And he's going to empower you and embolden you to share the message of the good news with the world so that they can get in on the kingdom too. Jews and Gentiles. Share the message, the gospel. And so then what we see as the story continues to unfold, number eight, is the kingdom proclaimed by the followers of Jesus. Peter and others, all the way down to this day, this delay was actually written right into the grand story for the purpose of permitting more people to hear the message of the good news and participate in the kingdom of God. Now Jesus had clearly stated that he was going to come back, right? He said, if I go, I'm going to prepare a place. Ooh place and he said and I will come again he's going to come back and he promised that he would come and fully and finally establish his kingdom but during this interlude listen now during this time this is the era we live in now during this season this interlude this delay what Jesus said he was going to do is he said I'm going to build my church which means he was going to establish little kingdom outposts all around the globe, in Gehenna, Ohio, in Makono Village, Uganda, and Los Anonos, Costa Rica, and in Russia and India, all, you can go anywhere around the world and you will find little kingdom outposts of devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are seeking to love their king and live out the kingdom values that he embodied. Little embassies of grace. I love that term, don't you? Embassies of grace, kingdom outposts, Colonies of heaven planted all around the world, filled with people who love the king, and they express the values of the kingdom. We're going to talk about this. You know God's kingdom is an upside-down, paradoxical, countercultural kingdom? In the kingdom of God, if you want to get ahead, what do you do? Get last in line. If you want to lead, serve. If you want to really live, 
die. Die to yourself. That's the kingdom of God. And all of these little embassies of grace, these little kingdom outposts, like this church, filled with loyal, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, seeking to live out those values so that the people in our community and around us at the office and at the school want what we have and want to be reigned over by our King, Jesus. And even if they don't believe it's true, they wish it were. <laughs> like, oh, I want to I live under that man's reign, the truly righteous ruler who promised to usher in the truly good life for his people. That's what this era is all about. Did you know that? The age of Christ's spiritual kingdom. Now, do you see how it's all one story? It's one story. The whole Bible. Do you see how it's unfolded? The kingdom of God, modeled in the Garden of Eden, rejected in the fall, promised to Abraham, pictured in the history of the nation of Israel, reaffirmed to David, anticipated by the prophets, and then with the arrival of Jesus, announced by him and inaugurated by him, and now in this age, proclaimed by his followers who seek to live out his kingdom values, giving our neighbors a foretaste of what it's going to be like when he's here and we live under his gracious rule. But one day, one day, hopefully not too far off, the kingdom will come in perfection. Amen? It's coming. It's not here fully yet. It's here, but it's not here. It's already, but not quite yet. It's both. We live in the kingdom, but the full manifestation of it is coming. We see predicted in the scriptures the kingdom perfected forever. One day the king will return and his second coming will not be as a cooing, gurgling little baby like it was in his first coming, but he will come as a mighty monarch coming to claim his royal throne. King Jesus coming. And at that time, the Bible tells us there's going to be a great separation, right? The enemies of the king are going to be banished forever from his presence in a place called hell. But his redeemed people will join him in a perfect new creation. And he's going to reign forever in the new Jerusalem. And all the kingdom promises, all the desires, all the yearnings are going to be fulfilled when the king is here ushering his kingdom. You know, John was given a vision of this. It's a glorious vision. Let me read just a little bit of it from Revelation 21. He writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Who sits on thrones? Kings do, right? I heard the voice from the throne saying, I love this, Behold, it's a great word, you know that? Heads up, look, pay attention, see, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You know what that is? That's the kingdom of God. That's the same phrase that appears way back in Exodus. This has been the dream of God all along to gather for himself a royal family who will live with him under his gracious rule 
in his specially prepared place. So the place is coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. God's there with his people. You can kind of feel God exulting here, can't you? Like, this is it. This is what I've wanted all along. Verse 4, here's what it's going to be like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain for the former things. That's from the old era. They've passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So what do you have? You have God's people, his redeemed people, now from all nations and tribes and languages, dwelling in God's specially prepared place, living under God's gracious rule and blessing. And get this, part of our inheritance as the royal family is that we get to reign with him. We get to reign with the king. We get to be co-regents with the king, reigning over the new creation. Isn't that awesome? It's like it's almost too good to be true. But it's true, because we find it in the pages of this book, the Bible, and we know that the Bible tells us the truth. This is so awesome. The perfected kingdom of God. Do you see it more clearly now? I hope so. One story. Story of a king seeking to establish a kingdom. It's a story of epic proportions, wouldn't you agree? And there's more. There's so much more. And we'll, we'll get into that. So let's do this. Let's come down now from 30,000 feet. <laughs> let's land the chopper. And let's get grounded here for a moment and ask the question, so what? How does this impact? Okay, this is a huge, epic story. Think about a couple things. Think about this. When you see, knowing this now, when you see your story, when you think about your little story, but you connect it with the big story, then your life leaps forward in significance at that moment. When you see your story connecting to the grand story of God, and when you realize, I, I was born into this story. I was born into it, but it, it's not a story primarily about me. It's about the king and his kingdom, but he's included me in this. And when you begin to see your life connecting with that big story, and especially when you align your mission of your life with the mission then your life begins to take on incredible dimensions of significance and meaning because you realize, oh, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I, I'm part of the supporting cast in the grand story of God. And I get to be here on the planet and, and, and worship the king and bow my knee to the king and live for the king and love the king and express the values of the king to the people who live with me and the people all around me so that they'll want him to reign over them too. That's huge in terms of the significance of your life. But then I want to bring it all down to a, a single point of, of application. And to me, knowing what we know, there seems to be no more appropriate question to ask right now than this. Are you in? <laughs> are you in the kingdom of God? Like, are you in it? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Do you love the King? Have you accepted His sacrifice for you? And beyond yourself, how about your loved ones? How about your family and friends and loved ones? Are they in the kingdom? Not everybody is, you know. Not everybody is. Let me close with several very poignant statements from the Bible 
Galatians 5.19 says this. Listen now, listen. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, literally those who practice such things, will not, what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God, won't be in it. People who are bound up by sin, enslaved by sin, will miss the kingdom because the king is holy. But, listen to the words of Jesus talking to Nicodemus from John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You know who's going to be in the kingdom? You know who's in the kingdom right now? And who's going to experience the fullness one day? It's those who are born again. Those who've experienced a second birth, who don't just have one physical birthday, but also have a spiritual birthday where they came alive to God. How can I be born again? Well, let me tell you how you can be born again. I don't know whether you're here today and you're 16 or 26 or 36 or in your 40s or 50s or maybe... 60s, 70s, maybe in your 80s even. You can be born again. Jesus did everything that needed to happen. King Jesus came. He lived the perfect, obedient life that you could never live, and then he died to take your death. And then he rose from the grave to prove he was God, and he's alive today, and he's listening. He's listening. Remember what I said? He's establishing all of these kingdom outposts all over the world and he's calling people to himself and you have but to repent of your sins, turn away from that old life and believe in Jesus Christ. Fully entrust your life to him. It's by faith that you can be saved. It's by faith. It's trusting. It's entrusting your life to the king and saying, Jesus, I believe you're the king. I believe you're the king of the universe. You're everything the Bible says you are. Including the sacrifice for my sins. And when you said it is finished, you meant it. It's done. I can't add anything to that, and I entrust my life to you. And in that moment, you can be born again. In that moment. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?